You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to wish you all a happy new year. Uh, 2019, I think, is going to be a great year for Revision Path, and I really hope that it'll be a great year for you as well. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. You know, there's three things that set designing at Facebook apart from designing anywhere else. Scale, variety, and investment. Facebook's design work has impact at scale, including your friends and family or people from the other side of the globe. Facebook design also works on a huge and diverse range of problems, and they truly invest in design, caring deeply about how their team might do their best work. Sound interesting? Then learn more about them at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Now, you may not know this, but before I started Revision Path, I had my own studio, Lunch, that I ran for a little over nine years. And during that time, I've been fortunate to not just be a MailChimp expert, but later on also a MailChimp partner. So I know inside and out that MailChimp not only puts out a killer product for managing email, uh, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, they do landing pages, now you can do postcards, but it's also a really great place to work full of dope people, some of which we've even had right here on the show. So whether you're just starting out or you want to take your business to the next level, give MailChimp a try. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Now for this week's interview. We're kicking off 2019 with Abimbola Idowu, a Nigerian software engineer in Berlin. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, hello, my name is Abimbola and um, I'm a software developer here in Berlin. I currently work with SAP. I work with, as a web developer there, I work with their firm Field Services, which is about planning technicians, and um, ensuring that our customers actually are able to, you know, easily plan technicians and respond quickly to customer demands. Aside that, I'm also actually love, I think in my, in my free time, I do a bit of open source. I kind of like to play games sometimes, and I also enjoy cooking, actually. Yeah, I think that's, that's me in a, in a very big nutshell. Okay. I want to get back to the open source stuff, and we'll do that a little bit later on, but walk me through what it's like working at SAP. I mean, it's one of the country's like biggest like tech companies. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think it's the biggest tech company in Europe. The company has roughly over 100,000, I think, um, employees. Wow. And yeah, it's, it's really big. I mean, across the world. So at SAP, I would say it's Really, really great working for them, especially for a big company. I would actually confess that for someone for me coming, because I just I, offi- I joined them officially, I think, two months ago. But for someone for me coming from a startup scene, you would feel that 
change that's there will be a bit of shock in a cultural change because in the startup scene you always see that things happen a bit spontaneously but in a big corporation there are always processes for everything you know like to I don't know anything you can think about this. There's a process for it. And one of the things I think that over times when I've been with them, I've, I've gotten to actually value the advantage of these things and um, get to realize that some of these things are actually required at the scale that we already operate. These processes are required to make sure that things are not very, very chaotic. And I, to say, I, I'm just thinking back, and I think one of the things that really I was so shocked about was the data security awareness it was, it was something that i mean you walk everywhere and you know that you have to keep the data safe and everything but with mm-hmm. sap after resuming i had to go for like three i think i've completed three trainings on, on data security and phishing and spamming and social engineering and everything and and i was saying that now right now it makes me so much conscious about okay what am i logging into where am i putting company data and yeah. it's really because of this awareness and it's something i find very interesting and i think only happens in a big company so it's it's really great in general yeah i feel like certainly here in the states people have started to become a lot more aware of data security not for the reasons you specify but more so just because big companies keep getting hacked and, you know, customer data keeps getting released out to the web or wherever it ends up getting released out to. So it's interesting that you said working there is kind of what put that notion in your head about how data security works. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think before, like I said, there's a normal basic um, understanding of how to keep your data secure, how to build secure hubs. But for big corporations, I've realized that, you know, for small company, if I mean, getting hacked is is not good, but what I've noticed is that the cost of getting hacked, you know, it's really different per company to company. So especially in places like Europe, where we now have GDPR um, laws, the customer data is actually released. It actually will cost the company a big lot of money. So it's always much more beneficiary for them if they actually act, if they, if, if they are proactive about it and they train their developers and the developers and the employees to really be conscious about what is it and what is what is not about about the data. And like you said, when you are big, the hackers out there know actually the level of data you have, and mm-hmm. you would always be a target to them. You know, like if you are a one-man company, they probably you know an hacker will probably even not find you. You it would be very hard for you to come across an hacker's radar. But for a big company, you would always come across across their radar. And I mean, from the training and the experiences that I've heard from people, especially with SAP, like they really love a lot of ways people can get hacked. It's not even hacking. Social engineering is the most common one now. Someone come in and, you know, the internet, now everybody has everything about you and someone calls you, hey, this is this. And because they know everything about you, you would think, you know, they would pretend to be who they are not. And they don't need to get someone something big from you. It's going to be something like you give them your colleagues middle name and from there they are able to call another person and get the person's address from there small small data then they build everything together and they issue their attack and so this is why for a big company actually um, especially in europe data security is, is is a very big thing yeah i just know i remember from earlier this year gdpr was a really big thing i mean here in the i mean like here in the u.s everyone sort of made fun of it because they kept getting all these emails from 
places they had never <laughs> forgot that they were signed up for <laughs> or subscribed to that were like, oh, by the way, this is how we're using your data. And even now I see on even more websites, these like notices that will be at the bottom of the page about how they use your information and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. It's. I also remembered I was in my company then when there was GDPR. Like we had to, we had to divide the team into two, and there was a section of our team that was really working on making our application GDPR compliant. Like we had a. To be honest, I think it's actually really crazy because there was this. I don't know, maybe almost sixty-five pages of the GDPR summarized, and we had a chief security officer that had to go through each and make sure that we were security conscious. And the reason is because of the cost. And I mean, if you look at the big picture, you would see also because we are, we are talking about data transparency, data responsibility, you know, you are, you are dealing with customer data and GDPR expects you to be responsible when where you handle customer data. If you know that you're not responsible, then don't deal with customer data. Don't collect data from people. And this, I think, is kind of the thing that, you know, ensures and forces or nudges companies to be much more conscious about the way they actually handle customer data, who has access to what and everything. And things like these are what they, you know, GDPR things that it will reduce case of data leaks, data acts, because for every person that's, have access to customer data in GDPR, you're meant to keep a track of, of the person. You're meant to notify the customer. If you have a data breach, there's there's a time frame where you have to notify the public that, mm-hmm. hey, I was hacked and this happened. And I think, you know, things like this are actually kind of like the advantage of, of GDPR. So it's a big thing generally in Europe, um, especially Europe companies, they try to. And also if you want to actually serve your app in Europe, so even app companies in the US that want to serve um, Europe users, you also have to be GDPR compliant. So it's a big thing and everybody's, um, I think now the GDPR phase is over because as at some few months ago, I think it came into effect in June or so. I'm not sure. And I think just before that time, everybody had to be compliant. And yeah, that was why there was a lot of emails going on because you have to actually notify the user about that. I have this data with you. And it's about data transparency, I think, is one of the main tenants of the GDPR. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that it's, overall, it's supposed to help make sure that your data is going to be safer. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it won't get hacked in the future. Like, it doesn't take that possibility away, but at least you know that the company is a greater steward of your data because of this this particular policy. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, it won't get hacked. The, the things I think also it does is more from from the GDPR aspect, you know, at the very big picture, they try to make sure that they minimize the effect of that happening. Even if it happens, this is what you should do. You know, like and this is what GDPR speculates that if in case you're hurt, you're hurt, this is what you should do. This is how you should respond. This is what it means. You know, and this thing is really about, like you said, about data transparency, about you know how you handle customer data. Yeah. So how did you first get interested in software development? Let's take it back. Let's take it all the way back, as, as far back as you want to go, at least. How did you first get interested in this? Actually, let me try and cut out my thoughts very well. I think it was something that you just, you just figured out for me at some point that you're interested in computers, not really programming. Computers then, for me, was a way... I, I, I'm not sure if it's peculiar to me, but I think generally for every kid there, you, you want to play games on computers, you want to press things, and so... I noticed at some point I was getting very used with computers, but not necessarily for programming. 
I naturally love to spend time on devices. And I would say, I think I would define myself as a bit of an introvert, not too much. So in my lonely times, I spend most of those times in front of a computer. After a while, I've got used to it. I got to know how to, you know, how to hack my way around things, install OS on computers, um, root my phone, install Android stuff. So generally, when you talk about finding way around computers, I actually knew how to, I was a bit conversant with that. And But programming per se, I think my main introduction or first experience with programming was, I remember I was in school and um, I spoke with a colleague of mine and the colleague was into this business we call it Buck SMS in Nigeria, but I think the name would be, I can't remember the name, but it's basically you send SMS from the, inter, you send SMS from the internet to someone's phone. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a name of the protocol actually, but I can't remember. So, but then the person was doing it. It was a pretty popular thing then because we were in school and there was departments and um, societies that want to send SMS in bulk to their members, right? So, you can't send SMS one by one from your phone. So that was where Buck SMS came to play. And because of that, people were actually starting this business of you go and sign up with some provider that would give you the API for the Buck SMS and you start to, you install some app, then you now start to share with others. So I got this guy that did Buck SMS. Then I told him, hey, I'm also interested. Can you link me up with the guy that actually started Buck SMS that created your website for you to know how to, you know, you are using to send SMS for the department and everything. And, you know, also I would to make money from it. Then he linked me up with the guy. Then I paid the guy. But the thing is, uh, I think in, in Nigerian currency, it was the cost of the old setup was, of the basic setup was around 25000 Wow. And twenty five thousand naira in in euros would be would be about um, sixty one euros actually, but it's, it's a, it was a big money then actually <laughs> even as a student. Yeah. But the interesting thing was it was not charging an extra fifteen thousand naira for customization. So meaning if you want your logo here, you want your you want your login page to be this. Then I told him, okay, you know what? Just do 25, I paid 25000 for the setup. I did not pay the extra 15000 for the customization. I said I was going to customize it myself. And before that, I had doubled a bit into WordPress. So I knew a bit of what was going on behind WordPress, installing plugins and everything. And before that, or like after it finished setting it up, then I found out that it was um, Joomla. It was a Joomla app. Then I said I was going to set it up myself. And that was actually what I would say marked my entry into um, web development because in the process of setting setting that things up, sometimes I had to customize things and, you know, you have to look at the books or Google something. I remember I was always going to the Joomla forum then to find out, okay, how do you install this plugin? I want to do this login page like this. I want to move this from year to year. I want to move this from there to there. And that was really how I got used to, okay, this is what code is, what code not. I still would say I didn't have a full grasp of what I was doing. I was really copying from the internet, but it was working for me and things like that. But that was really how it is. Then from I started reading more about what programming is and I figured, oh, wow, there were people that were actually making money out of it. And then 
it was a pretty popular thing for people that were building websites for people. And they were building websites for as low then as 30,000. It's like, hey, build your website. And everybody was building websites. I was like, I, I can actually do this. Then I calculated things. I was like, I, I think I will spend most of my more of my time doing this since it pays and there is money in it. And I mean, I also don't like school anyways. I was not the most brilliant student. So I was like, yeah, maybe this would actually pay for me. Then I started doing that and getting, you know, much more familiar with computers and Joomla and um, websites and everything. I think what actually gave a turning point for me was there was a time I remember when I was in my pre um, my year four, right? And I had to calculate my CGPA, mm-hmm. which is like the grade you get in the university. And I calculated everything and um, and I figured, okay, with this calculation, I was going to come out with a third class, and a third class is a third class is very like in the Nigerian context, a third class. And then I was studying agriculture actually also, and I figured that with a third class I would never be able to do anything. It's it's almost not possible, and it was like I calculated. I was like, okay, I had my fourth year and my fifth year, and in my fourth year and my fifth year, I decided. I aced everything, like I was getting A's all through. Mm-hmm. I still would not have a two-one, you know, a second class upper. I would probably be in a second class lower or something like that. And it was not even guaranteed because I mean I spent three years not having any. So then from there I made the decision that okay, there's this one thing I'm good at, which is programming. It makes money, there's money out of it. And I can actually do something for my life out of it. And I think I would focus my energy on that. I would just try to make sure that I did not have any I did not have any extra year in school and at that point i focused all my energy on programming and um, i would say the journey after then also was not too smooth because one thing i figured and is one of the things that right now i try to tell people that approach me that hey i want to go into programming i was like first of all it's not going to be easy one is that if you search internet for how to learn programming there's going to be probably millions and millions of results on Google. Mm. And every of them will will teach you through a different path. But I figured one of the things that helped me was always having a guidance to mentor you through the way you want to go. You know, I remember when I was in Andela, I had a mentor and and he painted this picture that I always paint everybody that miss me now, they want to go into programming. Like programming is like a sphere, right? It's like a circle. There's this big circle first of all there's a small circle right then you think you know everything in that small circle and you it's first as if you've covered everything in that circle then you pop out of the circle then you figure out there's a bigger circle right mm-hmm. yeah and you try to learn everything in that circle then you pop out again you say there's a bigger circle and <laughs> from there you realize that okay it's not possible and from there you want to you know it's kind of gets it gets overwhelmed for you. You are not actually learning things. You are just you know reading stuff, but you are not improving in yourself. You are not adding value to yourself. And what he told me was that instead of trying to cover the circle, which most people do, instead actually cover like a straight line, like draw a line and just follow a path from the inner circle. Then you bust out the outer circle. Then you bust out to the other circle. But like follow a arc like if you say like from the middle of the circle just go with like 10 degrees arc right and keep going up keep going up mm-hmm. keep going up and it was like that is really the way he said that i should go and you and and from there I've, i figured that you can't know everything right nobody can 
know everything. But if you know the if you know the little, like there's always this little minimum you need to know at a particular stage. And once you get to know it at that stage, you can jump to the next level. Do you get what I'm saying? And that for me was kind of like what I think really helped me to find my feet in programming. And that I would say was really what Andela did. It was more that before I was doing it on my own, I was reading a lot of books and things like that. But with Andela, it was it was more like a guided, you know, there was a curriculum of this is what what I need and need you need to know, yeah. and this to be valuable, and this this is to be valuable. And if you follow that, you would later realize that you you would be valuable and able to actually complete and do stuff. But if you focus on one part and you're reading a book and you're reading like before you know you've read like you've read like four books, but then you still can't able to build and help. And that is kind of like from there it became kind of like very much easy to to go into programming okay so you covered a lot there (laughs) Um, there, there's a few things i want to sort of go back to so the first thing i guess that jumped out at me was that you didn't study this in school you said you studied agriculture which i think is pretty uh, interesting a lot of people when they find that especially when i'm in berlin and i'm i I tell people that i didn't study computer science i studied agriculture they're like wow how did you do it and i'm like like i said I, I always believed that something would drive a man, right? And like for me, it was a function of I figured that agriculture was not it, and it had to be something else. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I remember when I joined Andela. When I got to Andela, even though I had, I've read these tons of book, I've actually, I've never worked on, I've never been paid to do web development work. So I actually had like zero experience. I oh. read this shit ton of book, but it was not. I would say. My knowledge was still here and there. I still could not paint this is what it is. But one thing I told myself was, when, I remember when I was going for Andela's boot camp, was that this was probably my only shot at this, mm-hmm. right? And I and I told myself, and, and, and I quickly said to myself, these guys coming here, the people that, you know, who are inter- being interviewed together, trying to get into the Andela um, program, we are, they, they probably have a higher edge. They are probably have, you know, some bit of advantage more than me because maybe they've studied a bit of computer science in school or something. But for me, coming from a Greek, I think I only remembered I did a computer science course in my 200 level, which I actually is. It was one of my best results. But I did a computer science course, just maybe three credits um, course in my 200 level, and that was it. And since then, I actually did not do anything related to, I was a typical farmer. When I got there, I figured I'm actually like, I always put myself that I'm two steps behind. So I need to put in two steps extra effort than what others are doing because I need to catch up. These guys know the principles and what is not. They can understand some of these things. And But for me, it was that I was not where, like, I figured out early that I do not have the advantage that others have. And because of that, I actually do not see that as a disadvantage, but rather as a challenge to make me to put more effort. And I tell people, it's it's not going to be easy. In the beginning, it will look like you are reading gibberish. You would want to give up. But mm-hmm. if what is driving you is greater than what is pushing you away, you would definitely eat a big true over it. I can't remember, but I read several articles about how this programming thing works. And is that in the beginning, it's all very difficult, right? You're always looking, what this thing doesn't make sense to me. And it's, it's like learning a new language, right? But after some time, they, they call it as this point in the in the article they call it the inflection point and after that point 
it stops becoming work for you. You know, it, yeah. it, it starts, it's, it's now natural. It's like you're learning how to drive a car. In the beginning, you're looking at the side mirrors and this and that and that. And, you know, the steering and are you placing the clutch very well. But after a while, you are not conscious about those things, you know. Then with that, you're able to, you know, you're able to tackle much more difficult challenges. And like that. And I tell people that don't give up early. I mean, program is not for any everybody, but for if you think it is for you, right, it's about don't give up early. You have to keep at it. You have to make a decision that, conscious decision that, okay, I'm going to always add value and learn this thing daily till I become a master at it. And that, I think, was one of the things that actually helped me and make me to pass the inflection point. And now, it's more like I can do anything I want to do in programming. Well, yeah, it certainly sounds like you have that. It's not even so much, I guess, that you have the drive to do it, which I think certainly you do, but that you have kind of methodically thought about this is the best way that it will work for me in order to learn it. And one thing that you sort of mentioned was that you had kind of a mentor or a buddy that helped you out via Andela. Now, can you describe for our audience what Andela is? Is it like a like a boot camp of sorts? Just to say, I, I left Andela a couple of while ago, but when I was there, Andela was really, Andela is a company that employs um, talent, trains them, make them, you know, they have the goal to actually build world-class developers. Mm-hmm. And after that, then they connect them to companies, you know, to, to work for. And that's, that's the basic, you know, I remember then the CEO, Jeremy, used to say that, there's something about opportunity is not even really, opportunity is not even really distributed or talented, something like that. But the idea of it is that there's talent everywhere, right? It's just all about putting them in an enabling environment and they would actually flourish, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is actually what Andela is. It's, it's about, uh, we bring these people together that have the passion and the drive. They really want to learn programming and software development and become world-class developers. They want to make something from themselves. Then let's put them in, in a room. Then let's enable them, you know, give them the enabling environment, give them resources they need, give them the mentorship they need, the guidance they need. And that was it. And I think that is really kind of like... Um, what Andela stands for at the core of it. Okay. Yeah, it kind of sounds, I guess, a little bit like, hmm, like here in the States, it sounds like it would be similar to, say, General Assembly or something like that, in a way. But it sounds, I, no, with, with General Assembly, they are teaching you, they have different courses and stuff. But once you graduate through those courses, then they do sort of pair you up with companies and things. So it kind of sounds a little bit like that. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty. I mean, I I don't know much about what General Assembly does. I think, but I think it's pretty much similar to that. It's that you know you get into Andela. Um, like I said, this was when I was in the company. But you get into Andela, then you go through the two weeks boot camp. Mm-hmm. Then after the two weeks boot camp, if you get accepted, you join the fellowship. Then for the fellowship, you go into the training. And the training is where they teach you the basics of programming. You start from your HTML and your CSS and your JavaScript, the very basics. And you do that for about three months. And afterwards, then you you are placed on client projects, you know, clients in the U.S., everywhere around the world. And you work on these things to actually get, you know, to get real-life experiences and in in all these, it's still up all part of the of the program or the fellowship. So they are training you, uh, mentoring you, pairing you up, and you know, it's like I said, it's really about giving you an enabling environment to make sure you succeed. 
at what you're doing. Andela is, is a four-year fellowship program. Um, so meaning when you come in, the, the goal is that you pass through them for four years and at the end of the fourth year, you should be a full stack developer. And that is kind of like what they, they try to achieve with, with their um, fellows. And I'm guessing that companies kind of, I guess they use Andela in terms of they keep it in pretty high regard. So like if you go through Andela and a company knows that you went through Andela, then they know, oh, this person knows their stuff. That's sort of what it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially for companies that work to Andela, it's kind of like a referral thing. More like when you've worked with a bit an Andela fellow, or I mean, it's good happen to any company also, and you figure out that, okay, the product of this company or the product of this fellowship is good, then you also actually always want to, you always want to go back to them. You always want to, you know, partner with them or work with them. And I think that's, that is really kind of the, I would say boldly that if you meet an Andela fellow, trust me, the guy is good or the, yeah. or the lady is good. It's just like that. Yeah. Yeah. And for people that are listening, Andela is located, it's a, it's a worldwide company. I know there's, there's an office in Lagos. There's one in Nairobi. There's one in Kampala. There's one in Kigali, but then there are also four offices here in the U.S. No, three. I'm sorry. There's one in New York, one in Austin and one in San Francisco. It's a global company in that way. So I think that's really dope that it, it puts you through that kind of rigor in order to make sure that you come out on the other end ready and prepared to, really kind of be out there in the industry. Yeah, 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 sure, sure, definitely. I mean, they also had kind of like big um, companies that are rooting for them. Facebook is one of their, one of their investors, you know, that decided to... Oh, yeah, the, to, the uh, to, Chan Zuckerberg initiative. Yeah, Chan Zuckerberg initiative. Yeah, a ton of money too, because I, I think they really believe in what they are trying to do. And um, what is it that that people are they they kind of like their mission and what they are trying to achieve, especially in in Africa? Nice, nice. So I know that you are originally from uh, Lagos, originally from Nigeria, but you've only been in Berlin now for about two years. Is that right? Yes, I moved to Berlin September 2016. Okay. What are some of the changes that you had to get used to going from Lagos to Berlin? I mean, I think for me, I. I, I, I don't know if it's peculiar to me because actually before I got to Berlin, I actually haven't left to Nigeria before. So okay. Berlin was kind of like my first international or first country I went to outside Nigeria. So it was really very shocking for me. Like there were some, I would say first of all, it was a, it was a cultural differences. There were things that 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 was happening that that happens in Nigeria that does not happen here. And there are things that happen here that does not happen in Nigeria. Um, I would say, for example, the German bureaucracy, right? So you, you come in as a new, you know, immigrant or expat, and you know, before you get into the system, you kind of like settle down, get accommodation, and things like that are really things that, you know, they are they are a bit. They're a bit cumbersome. You know, before I read online and they were like, ah, move to Berlin. Berlin kind of like the, it's an international city, a lot of foreigners everywhere. And, you know, they speak English. Mm -hmm. Then you come here and you figure, hmm, not quite everybody speaks English, (laughs) right? (laughs) And you have to, like, I remember for like the, for like the first three months, if I'm going from work to office, I turned it like I was doing it as a routine. Like I knew, 
I knew exact exactly like okay, I leave my house, then I walk to the train station, then I stop at this, um, then I take this train going to this place. Um, from this place, then I walk down and and go and walk to the office. And it was it was pretty like it was pretty much like I was not sure. For example, if I enter the train and paraventure the train decides to change direction due to maybe the is normal part is faulty or there are repairs going on, I would get lost. And it happened to me before that I got lost. Yeah. And that was because I probably mind that this was the normal way. I enter the train, then I stop at this place, then I do this. So I don't I don't think what goes on in the middle. And also because if there was to give you an announcement, it would be in German, right? And if you can't speak the, the, the oh. language. <laughs> you wouldn't know that they are telling you, oh, this train is changing due to this that is happening or something. Then yeah. you, I, I think the language is the first initial shock for me. It was, it was that trying to, you know, fit in, trying to understand what is going on. It was really something that happened. I, I remember when I first came to Berlin, I tried learning German. I signed up for two months. After a month, I just dropped out of the school. I was like, yeah, I can't deal with this. <laughs> Because you have to do with it a lot. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I guess sometimes when you move to a new place, you do kind of get stuck in that routine. You know how to get to your place and to work and like maybe three or four other places. But yeah, if the if the announcement's in a totally different language, that's a whole other that's a whole other kind of <laughs> thing that you have to yeah, get it's, used to. It's totally I mean, for me, the company I joined was they were pretty international, so meaning that they actually they understood the problems that experts faced and there were also a lot of experts in the company. So they knew what was it like registration at the government place, extending your visa, creating bank accounts. So they were very familiar with all this. So I didn't really have to go to that stress, but I know some of my colleagues that if you join a company that maybe you are the first international um, employer they are having or something that they, they, they are not familiar the issue of, okay, this is how you get accommodation or this is a struggle to get accommodation, this is a struggle to do your registration at the government. And these things actually can be very, very overwhelming, especially when you go there and, for example, in the government offices, they don't speak English, which is understandable. I mean, it's a government office. So Mm -hmm. you have to either go with a translator or you just make sure that you practice beforehand the things you're going to say because so that you're able to find your way around what... What is happening? I remember when I first got to Germany, the first thing I learned was, I should go, my Deutsch is so good. And in the meaning is, my German is not good. And once you start the conversation with that, you know, the person kind of understands, or or, or you say, ah, I should go, Konevia sprechen English. So meaning, hey, excuse me, can we speak English? And once you start with that, for people that can speak, but they don't want to speak, they try to, you know, mix the English with German for you, just to make sure that you understand what is going on. And, you know, and you have the conversation very short and um, you get your way and get the things you're trying to do. So, like I said, the company I joined when I came from Nigeria, they were pretty international. So I didn't really feel it much. Well, that's good. That's good. Has it gotten easier now the longer you've been there? Uh, no, no, no. Really? Now I, now I would say it's been Deutsche. <laughs> 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 yeah, now, now I put people through. I have colleagues that call me. I was like, okay, this is what you do first. This is what you do first and things like that. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure. I mean, there's a bureaucracy around. 
Um, but it's not as difficult as possible. And like now I speak the language a bit mm-hmm. so I can engage myself. I can read what is going on. I can read the news, read the signboards and things like that. I can speak. If I go to offices, I can speak the language to them. So I would say it's really right now. No, I don't. I don't think I would complain of the German bureaucracy. I, I, it will still be there. Sometimes you feel so like, oh, why are you guys doing this? Yeah. But uh, yeah, after two years, yeah, I, I don't feel that way anymore. I've, I think I've pretty much known my way around a lot of things. Okay. Well, no, that's good. I mean, you've you've been immersed in the culture now, so you're kind of you're picking it up now. At least that's good. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely, and which is one of the things I also usually tell my people is that hey, when you come, don't. You know, sometimes you want to feel withdrawn because of everything and, you know, it definitely not like home, but also it's that if you want to enjoy it, because after a while you actually, because I remember when I first came in, my, in, in I think in the in the second month, I was planning to go back hmm. because there was it was really too much. I was the only one. I was only going to work. It was the only place work and the grocery store. And it was really, really very tough. It was very tough. And to be honest, I was saying in Nigeria, I was not doing so bad. I was working with big company and I was earning very good. So it was a function of what am I coming to do? I mean, even when I came, actually, I didn't plan to come. It was it just happened by mistake that hey, there was this German company that misinterested in you. And when I was coming, I actually came for adventure. I didn't give away my apartment when I was coming. I had planned to come for adventure, maybe spend one year. And go back to Nigeria. So in the first two months, when it was really, really very tough, I wanted to go back because it was something that should be, especially when your family and your friends and your loved ones are not around you, then you you feel very tough, especially, especially as an expert. But for me, I would say one of the things that really helped was, you know, interacting with people, the colleagues at work, Nigerian friends I, I got to meet. I, I remember that time I I connected with a secondary school mate that was also studying in Germany and he came to visit me one or twice, took me to the grocery stores because, for example, the grocery is totally different, right? I, yeah. If I wanted things like the tomato paste or something, I didn't know what they were called. I didn't know, okay, they were packaged in this shape or something. So he took me to the grocery store thinking, okay, this is what we have in Nigeria and this is the equivalent Oh, nice. in Germany, you know, yeah. so that so then with that, I was able to, okay, get food and cook and be able to eat a bit, then go out. And then I figured, okay, I actually don't need language for some things. I just go there and, you know, happens and hang out, then have fun. Then I started figuring out places to to really go out and interact with people. And I think that's really what made it, what made it very, very smooth for me at the end. But in the beginning, if you don't have that support system, I mean, people are wired differently, but for me, it was it was really tough in the beginning. Is there a big, like, African-slash-expat community there? No. I mean, now I think it's beginning to grow up because, especially in the tech, there are a lot of people that are relocating to Europe now and um, Germany and Berlin, to be specific. So it's growing now. I mean, you just have to go on Twitter. You would find someone in Berlin to reach out to. I get I, friends that are coming, but... One, we don't have that. It's not an official or recognized entity kind of thing. But for the tech, it's really there. But for the Nigerian thing, 
I don't know, maybe also because maybe it's me, I, uh, maybe because I don't go out and interact with people, but I really can't say I know of any kind of like organized African or Nigerian. Like you may see Africans here and there and you guys greet each other or something, but in terms of that organized Nigerian setting, no, it's not there. It's when we came for, we that came from Nigeria, especially with the tech in the last two to three years, we are organizing ourselves and supporting each other and things like that. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I know we've had, I think, two other people on the podcast who are in Berlin. We had Timmy Adeneyi, who I think at the time she was working at Blinkist. And then we have Lauren Dorman, who uh, she's American. She's from Ohio, but she works for, I think it's called A Color Bright in Berlin. And I remember hearing both of them talk about Berlin and say that it's like a very, you know, kind of metropolitan city. It made me want to visit. I still do want to visit one day. I wanted to see what it's like. But no, it's interesting. I thought there would be a bigger African contingent there for some reason. I mean, me too. I think that there would be because there are really a lot of people. But sometimes when they do, I think what there was this festival they did. I can't remember the name. I went with a colleague and... Like there were some African countries represented and it was it was kind of like a really big scene and you know, you get to see a lot of African you get to see a lot of Africans and, and things like that, but really specific to the people and the day. I mean, if you don't know people, you you won't know people, right? So sometimes it's about also kind of like seeking out and looking for what is it and whatnot. But in terms of an official or kind of a recognized thing that you can just go to somewhere. No, I don't think we, we have. Maybe there is, and I don't know. Like I said, I'm not really the going out person, but maybe there is. I just know that I know my kakos. I know people that we came from Nigeria together, and we are all living and surviving in the city. Okay. Well, who knows? By the time this comes out, I'm pretty sure some folks will be like, I'm in Berlin. Hit me up. So you never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Definitely. I would definitely like to really anger with people who and meet people. I mean, I, like I said, we I, there are people regularly sometimes I know that we try to um, hang out, especially people that we came together, like I knew in Lagos or we worked in Andela or worked together at some company in Nigeria. And, and I would say that these are the kind of people I knew, but definitely it's, it's, it's never too late to hang out with new people, meet new people, see new faces, and um, yeah, spend Christmas together. All right. Well, I have some questions here. These are some from our audience here. Actual questions are from Kojo Boateng, who was our, uh, he was our guest on our 125th episode back a long time ago. He's curious to know, do you have any plans to go back to the continent? No concrete plans for now. I could go back. I mean, I, I would never rule that I could go back, but currently there is no, there's no concrete, there's no concrete plans to go back. There are a couple of things that could make me go back. Um, first of all, if I decide it's the right time to to go start up something, and that is one of the things that will make me go back. Or it's also actually, it's actually possible that maybe there's a work that will make me go back. You know, maybe my company decides to deploy or say, hey, go back to Nigeria. I, I wouldn't say no to that, you know. So those are the things. But top of my head, in terms of time frame of, hey, I plan to go back in two or three years or something. I don't have any concrete plan for, okay. for that. And the second question actually is related to that. What opportunities do you see for technology in Nigeria? I think the opportunities in Nigeria as a whole is really massive. There are a lot of things that we can capitalize on, you know. I say from, they're really massive things, you know, from like fintech, 
that's just something that we have some companies that are pushing the boundaries, but this is something that I think we've not yet, we, we, we still need to do more, right? It's with the banks and everything, we, we really need to drive down the banks. And, um, and I think this would happen through fintech. We are able to get much more Nigerians to go into, to use more cashless based method of payment and things like that. And I think this is really going to be much more helpful for the society. One of the things also I think it's a big area is e-commerce. E-commerce, it's it's not yet there. There's just challenges trying to strive in the in the system, um, but I think it's actually a very big, big, massive opportunity. There's a massive opportunity in Nigeria in e-commerce. You just need to find the right people with the right skills and you know that understand the market and know how the market. And I think it's one of the things that, uh, especially e-commerce. If I was if I was to go back, is one of the things that I would really love to dive into. Another thing is transportation. We really have a lot of transportation issues, but I think we take there are ways. I mean, we have things like Uber and um, and um, what have you. Uber and you know companies like that, but transportation is also something that it's really big, and I think it's one of the things that I see as big opportunity in in Nigeria about yeah for in the Nigerian tech space actually. Okay, fintech, e-commerce, and transportation. Yeah, those are the things. Those are the things I would bet on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like you know earlier you were mentioning the uh, that sort of internet sms kind of app i forget what what you said it was called but i remember Book you talking SMS. about that well. yeah. yeah is that something that's still used there no it's yeah. i think what happened was it rained then everybody started doing it and that's all, now everybody doesn't do it anymore actually also it was good for me when i was a student but right now it's not something i will probably go back into like there are people that are doing it and they are doing it well yeah. and in fact at least the last time i read about it like the big companies also entered the space like mtn entered into that space also so like mm. if you you if you want to go into there you won't you won't go into that space now you won't make any money out of it actually oh okay okay yeah now, this interview is airing at the beginning of 2019 or right near the beginning of it. So I'm curious to know, what is it that you want to accomplish this year? What do you want to accomplish in 2019? For 2019, I think one of the things I want to be able to do is I have some help. I, I'm planning to build and I really hope that I'm able to finally start it off. So it's kind of like a small startup on my own year in Germany. I hope that I'm able to gather my thoughts together very well and um and start it off and then also i actually plan to one of the things i majorly want to do is i want to be able to take more computer science courses i want to really get myself grounded if possible start it's either i do kind of like courses of computer science in maybe or coursera and co and get more grounded in that in that line or I actually go and do kind of like online masters in something. If I'm, if I'm able to start that in 2019, I think it would really be good career-wise for me. So those are the things I think I would I will focus on personal, aside um, family and maybe other social, other social goals. Okay. When you look back at your career, you know, starting out the way that you started out in Nigeria and then now moving here to Berlin, what do you wish you would have known when you first started? You mean when I started, when I got to Berlin or started like well, when I, I started? Guess, I guess when you started just working in general, like working in this industry. 
Uh, oh, working in this industry. Um, yeah. I think one of the things I would tell back my tell my younger self is never doubt yourself. You know, you are always going to be good for somebody. You know, there's always going to be somebody. There's going to be some company for you. So never think you're never good enough. You know, you are good in your own in your own place. And this is one thing. Like right now, I tell people I. I have roughly about four to five years experience in programming. One of the things that really gives me so much joy was for every company I have worked for, the remarks, even when I am leaving, has always been great, has always been pleasant. In the midst of this, you will see apply. Like I remember when I was trying to, before I, I got to this company, I was applying to companies and I sent my CVs out. And there were people that would that actually replied me that there was someone that replied me and was like, Hey, you really look so junior. We can only offer you a junior developer role. I was mm. like, no way. I the, and it, like in the company I was coming from, I was a, I was a team lead. I was leading the Node.js open source project. So and you know, for a recruiter to get back to me, actually, it was not a recruiter. I was a CTO because I passed the recruiter stage. It was the CTO of the company that got back to me, and said, "You are really like you seem to be a junior developer." And I mean, I don't know what would have the person is entitled to his opinion, but. One of the things I figured now is that you don't let things like that get to you, right? Now I'm working in a place where I'm valued and my work is being valued. I am seeing my work bringing millions for the company I'm working for. And I think, you know, it's more like, yeah, thank God you, you told me I was, you rejected me because if I had probably worked for you, you probably would see me like a junior developer and you wouldn't appreciate my effort and things like that. And this is something that, I would have told my younger self is that hey go for it you it you don't doubt yourself companies know what they are looking for and as far as you're able to prove to them that this is what i can do this is what i have done right they let them decide whether you are good enough for them or not i mean you you can't be fit for everybody you you know there's always going to be some size some shoe size for you 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 can't wear all you can't fit into all shoes so mm-hmm. That is kind of like what I would I would tell myself is that don't let the things you hear or things happening around you really bother you. If you think you want to go for something, go for it. And and you never can tell. Do you see yourself kind of staying in Berlin for a while and like putting down roots? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think I, I've, I've gotten to love here. I've gotten to love the code and everything. The only variable for me, it's really kind of like my family. If they get to Berlin and they decide that they, yeah, maybe it's not working or something, then we have to figure out what to do then. But for me personally, I think I kind of love the Berlin scene. And one of the things I kind of like I'm seeing popping out is the tech, the tech space. Like it's, it's booming very, very, very big. And like I said, you know, I mentioned earlier that one of the things I want to do was there was this app I actually want to start and I want to build. And it's because it's booming. And the government here actually is kind of promoting and aiding these things, actually. Like if you if you tell the government, yeah, you want to go into startup, they suddenly like they are very supportive and everything for my guys that I know that, you know, are into entrepreneurship here. So it's generally something is something I love. Just still part of the old German culture and something I still don't figure out yet, but then I don't need to figure out everything out. So I see myself here for the next yeah four to five years. Then we decide whether we want to remain here or not. The only thing that can make me leave is probably really if my family decides, yeah, maybe it's too cold here or there is no <laughs> sun or something. Yeah, definitely. Those are the kind of things that 
can make me think, okay, maybe we need to relocate again or go back to Nigeria or something like that. But aside that, yeah, Berlin is lovely. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, just from how you're describing it, as well as from what I've heard from other people, it really sounds like uh, Berlin is kind of a a good spot in Europe right now where a lot of things are going on in tech and in design, too. Uh, So that's good to hear. Yeah, definitely. There are really lots of especially for the for the tech startup and i i think maybe i would do my research more to find out why mm-hmm. but like there's a start there's tech startup complaint in your next door like it's everywhere everybody is doing things and like companies are not dying you know like companies are striving they are they are doing good and they're just like i haven't really studied what is going on so but i think that there needs to be something good that is happening for for really startups to be to be striving so much so much like we we have companies that are beginning to they're deciding like currently now we have google that's planning to come to berlin open a big big campus you have more companies opening amazon came recently opening an office in berlin and we have companies that are coming to berlin now and i think for this starts this tech boom is it's really at the early stage i think in the next five to ten years is going to be well saturated and it's actually going to be the next silicon valley that's what i believe okay i'm gonna take your word for it i believe it too <laughs> yeah yeah sure uh well just to kind of wrap things up here where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online yeah i'm on twitter at is abimbala so my name is abimbala and just at his in front you will see me on twitter disclaimer i'm into politics and currently it's election period in nigeria so if you follow <laughs> me now <laughs> you will see more election things <laughs> yeah but sometimes i try to tweet about coding or you can reach out to me there then also i have isabimbala.com which is my website. Disclaimer, it's pretty old, but I'm a developer, so it's acceptable in the tech scene. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Then also there's, um, I'm on Medium, medium medium.com slash Isabimbala. Or you can find me on GitHub. And um, yeah, I I do a bit of open source things there also, um, github.com slash Isabimbala. So basically Isabimbala, any social media, as you mentioned, uh, open source, I remember we didn't really talk about that, but I guess we can get into it now. What kind of open source work are you doing at the moment? I currently, I'm actually not actively into open source, but I, I, remember, I think a few days ago, I contributed to the NOC software, um, the NOC library. For me, I was once active into open source. I've been active. I've, been, I've, I've, I've done a bit into Express some years back. Um, then frequent camp also was one of the th- one of the things I've contributed to, um, but right now I do more on a kind of like need basis. Then also I still have actually people still use it, um, but I have this module I wrote which is Slack History Exporter, which allows you to export your history from Slack. If you have a Slack app, you export it to CSV or JSON. I wrote a CLI too for that, mm-hmm. and people really actually um, use that, and it's, and it gets. Yeah, I get issues and people actually are contributing to that. So that is really kind of like part of the main things I do in the in the open source. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, Abimbolo Odowu, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for really kind of sharing your perspective. Uh, I think it's really, really interesting how, you know, when we have other people on the show, they often will start from a non-traditional kind of background, like 
maybe they, you know, just had it as a hobby and then they got into, you know, technology or design or what have you. And it sounds like it's very similar with you. You kind of were used to kind of hacking things together, you know, rooting phones. You studied something different, but now you've worked your way up now to being a, uh, you know, a developer, one of the biggest uh, software companies in Europe, which I think is a really kind of inspiring thing for anyone to know that there's not just one way to get into this industry. And certainly uh, you're a success story that shows that. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Pleased to be here to share my story, talk about Berlin, talk about Nigeria. It's really my, it's really my pleasure to actually talk more about Thing. So I'm, I'm equally happy to be on the show. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Abimbola Idowu and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Abimbola and his work through the links in the show notes at provisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. Designing at Facebook means more than just making pixel-perfect prototypes. It's designing experiences like disaster relief tools or get-out-the-vote efforts. It's working on problems that transform a number of different industries. But it also means caring about the design community and giving back to it as well. So if influencing product strategy and working alongside product managers and engineers on a product from start to finish sounds good to you, then you might want to check out Facebook Design. Learn more about them at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. You know, MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. Revision Path is brought to you by Glitch, the friendly community where you'll find the app of your dreams. Make sure you check us out at Glitch.com. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Check out the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Push that. Push that.